If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word today to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16, as we uh, will consider the entire chapter this morning, uh, 16 verses here, uh, as we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis together. Um, as we come out of chapter 15, and we consider the conversation between Abram and God, and the reassurance, the affirmation of the promise from God to Abram that he will most certainly have an heir, which will be his very own son, that the son will come from Abram. And we consider the, 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 the magnitude of that promise, the, the, the certainty, the bluntness of the terms that God uses there with Abram, and then we see God establish the covenant with Abram, that has been mentioned all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 in those first three verses. He, he, he ratifies this covenant by himself. And yet we come to the end of chapter 15 last week and there's something there that we failed to mention. And that is this, at the end of chapter 15, Abram still does not have an heir. He still does not have his very own son to be that heir and so the the problem still remains and so we might think this morning in the natural progression of the story that we come to chapter 16 and we're going to find that Abram has a son that the promise comes to fruition the one that God promised him there in chapter 15 verse 4 that will be his very own that Abram will finally have a son and if that's what you think we will find here in chapter 16, you're actually right. If you look at the very end of chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, it says this, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore him, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And so we might think to ourselves, there it is. This tension in the story of Abram has been resolved. He finally has a son. The promised seed has arrived on the scene. But there's one glaring problem in those two verses that we just read, and it is the name of someone that we have yet to come to know here in the story of Genesis, and her name is mentioned three times, Hagar. If you've been following the story of Abram so far, you know that Hagar is not Abram's wife. Abram's wife is Sarai. So who is this Hagar and what do we do with her? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to go back to the very beginning of the story in chapter 16, verse 1. If you'll follow along with me there, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me, or you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. 
Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. In trying to answer this question, who is Hagar, what do we do with her? In these first six verses, the first half of the story, we come to see that there are consequences for not submitting to God's ways. In fact, in these first six verses, these verses are laden with self-serving choices that result in bad results. In fact, part of the tension in the story around Hagar is a consequence of not trusting in God earlier in the story. Hagar is an Egyptian servant, and many theologians agree that back there in chapter 12, when the, the, the narrative of Egypt happened and Abram plots to deceive Pharaoh so that he doesn't sleep with his wife and, or, 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 or kill Abram, and, and, and there he says that this is not my wife, rather it is my sister, and coming out of that part of the story, theologians agree that Hagar would probably have been one of the servants that came with them from Egypt. So part of the tension in the story rests in a decision, in a choice that Abram made earlier in the story that has consequences. But the primary tension is what we've already mentioned, and you see it there in verse 1 at the very end. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's important for us to stop here for a moment and to understand a couple of things about the child who is going to come from Abram. Not only is it going to be Abram's very own son, as we mentioned there in chapter 15, verse 4, but as we talked about in the, the, the Egypt narrative there in chapter 12, Sarai is also a part of the promise. The child is to come from Sarai, Abram's wife. This is why it was so important that God spared her there in Egypt from Pharaoh and kept him from defiling her. The promise here is dependent on one man and one woman, Abram and Sarai. So the tension is presented to us there. And so Sarai speaks in verse 2. And the first thing she says there is the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And so we think we're off to a good start. Sarai recognizes that it is the sovereignty of God that has kept her from bearing children. She recognizes that. But when you read that, if you, if you kind of think to yourself, man, it seems like she's also a little bit frustrated. That there's a little bit of, uh, in, in what she said, that there's a little condescending tone to what she says. You would be right. She is most certainly frustrated. And so although in one breath she recognizes that God is sovereign over the situation, notice what she then says. She then says, so I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to resolve this problem myself. And so she tells Abram, go into my servant, Hagar. She also says there that it may, um, that I may obtain a child or children by her. We see here, too, that Sarai is more concerned with the prospect of obtaining children than she is resting in the promise. So Sarai speaks, and we turn our attention to the patriarch, Abram. And we think to ourselves, surely after chapter 15 and all that God said to him and the promise that God makes to him, surely here Abram is going to say to his wife, you know what, let's wait on the Lord. Let's trust in the Lord's promises. But notice what Abram says. It says there of Abram that he listened to the voice of Sarai, his wife. This should sound very familiar to us in the story of Genesis. Back in chapter 3 in the garden, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree and disobeyed God, in punishing Adam, it says there in verse 17 of chapter 3, God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so just as his great, 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 great grandfather Adam did, here Abram sits by in complacency and goes along with the plotting of his wife. We're reminded here that we are all in Adam. There is no sin that is new under the sun. We are all fallen and broken and follow after the pattern of our first father, Adam, in sin. So we come to verse 3 and we kind of see the climax of this part of the story. Sarai gives her servant Hagar over to Abram as his second wife. Something that's really important for us to understand here about verse 3 is this, this would have been the cultural norm of the day. It would have been acceptable in that day to have multiple wives, and especially in a situation where your first wife could not bear children, to have another wife so that you could have an heir, so that you could have children. And so as Sarai and Abram try to resolve the problem of not having a son in and of themselves, they think, well, this is a reasonable option. Essentially, they say here, everybody else is doing it. So not submitting to God's ways, they ultimately distort God's view of marriage by giving this one over to Abram as another wife. All of human history, we see men distorting the ways of God. Again, there is nothing new under the sun. Man throughout all of human history has said, this is how the culture does it. This is how my friends do it. This is how the world does it. We see the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament saying, look at at the nations. They've got it well. God, can't we do things like them? And so out of this, no shock, Hagar conceives. And she looks, the text says, with contempt on Sarai. She sees her as dishonorable in her own eyes. Interestingly, this is the same word that's used in chapter 12, verse 3, where God said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you or curses you or looks with contempt at you, I will curse. Uh, The word here, though, that's used in my translation, the ESV, the word contempt, is is probably a little bit too strong, Uh, even cursing here. Really what the writer is communicating to us here about what Hagar is doing is, is more of a natural maternal pride. Right or wrong, Hagar had a child and Sarai didn't. So she just naturally looks at Sarai in this way. This is just the natural outworking of the solution, of the problem. And so Sarai puts the blame on her husband, Abram. And again, hearkening back to the garden, just as Adam did, he put the blame on God and on the woman where he said there in Genesis, the woman you put here with me made me eat the fruit. Sarai shifts the blame to her husband. And so we come back to the patriarch. We come back to Abram and we think, okay, Abram's going to intervene. Here he's going to say, you know what? Let's wait for the Lord. Let's wait for the Lord. It's too late at this point. And so what does Abram do? He looks to his wife and it says there he made her, her servant. Again, the words there are, uh, he says, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So she's been elevated to the position of wife, but now Abram downgrades her again to the position of servant. And so it's no surprise, no shock that then Sarai deals harshly with her. At the end of verse 6, we see that Hagar fled from Sarai. 
how Sarai and Abram handled the tension of the chapter was not the solution. God did not permit this. Instead of trusting in the Lord and waiting on the Lord, we see them here serving self and then ultimately not taking responsibility for their own actions. Serving self, not taking responsibility for their own actions. That sounds a lot like a culture that I know. That sounds a lot like the world that we live in today. It sounds a lot like a generation that is being raised up right now in America. Church, if you're not aware of this, we live in a post-truth age. The mantra of our day is, this is my truth I can believe whatever I want to believe, regardless of what God's standards and ways are, what I deem as fit for me is what is true. The the second part of that then is when problems arise for not submitting to God's way, to saying this is my truth, this is how I'm going to live, and there are negative outworkings of my truth. Instead of taking responsibility, then we shift the blame, as we see Sarai doing here, to others. Well, it's my, it's my parents' fault. It's my school's fault. It's the government's fault. It's the church's fault, all in the name of this is my truth. Dear friends, the text screams this morning, there is truth. There is truth, and it is found in the word of God. And when we do not submit to God's ways, there are consequences for that. And so there in verse 5, when she says to Abram, Hagar looked at me with contempt. The response of Abram should have been there at that point. What did you expect? What did you think was going to happen? And again, we talk like this in our day. We don't submit to God's ways and then we're shocked when the consequences are bad. So people will will say, "We, we had sex before marriage and now... We're pregnant. Shocker. I had alone time with someone other than my spouse, and now I have been unfaithful. I'm not active in the local church, and yet I don't hear from God. Where is God? I let my children decide what's best for themselves, and now they don't listen to me. Dear church, there is truth. God's word is clear. His ways are sure and pure and right. We must submit to them. And when we don't, we will bear the consequences of not submitting to his ways. Now, I want to say this. There is grace in this place today. Whatever consequences you bring in here in these moments because of your sin, dear friend, hear me. There is freedom and restoration and redemption to be found in the blood of Christ. Regardless of what consequences you are facing for your sin today, there there is restoration and redemption for the inmate who is sitting on death row right now found in the blood of Christ at the cross. But grace does not trump the consequences in this life. And so we must ask ourselves today as individuals, as families, as a church, who will we serve? Will we serve the ways of man? Will we serve the ways of self? Will we serve the ways of the culture or this world? Or will we submit ourselves to God 
and his ways and his standards. Dear ones, we don't have to look to the world's thoughts on how to raise our children or how to treat our spouse or how to view the issues of our day in regards to marriage and and homosexuality and transgenderism. We don't have to look to business models and strategies to figure out how it is that we do this as the church. His word is sure. It is true. We must submit to his ways alone. It is truth. It is clear. Run to the word. Rest in the word. Trust the word. Obey the word of God. Where Sarai and Abram should have waited on the Lord, we then turn our attention to the last half of the story. And we come to see that there is waiting when submitting to God's ways. Pick up with me in verse 7 there. It says, The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring of the way of way to shore, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing for my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, If you will surely you I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Again, in these closing verses of the story, we see that there is waiting when submitting to God's ways. Now, the text does not explicitly say, wait for the Lord. But the application of the passage is most assuredly that, that we need to wait for the Lord. We we don't know the motives or the intentions of Hagar. We, We would do ourselves a disservice if we read into the text that Hagar is here waiting and praying for the Lord by the spring of water. That would not be helpful, but we most certainly see the tension of waiting. Sarai had no children yet. She was still barren. And we most certainly see God intervening on behalf of the Egyptian slave girl. So what is so ironic about this passage is that it's the one from Egypt who hears from God and is cared for in her affliction. It should have been Sarai. Sarai, at the beginning of the story, is the one who should have been cared for in her affliction, in her suffering, in her concern, and yet she takes things into her own hands. And so here we find Hagar fleeing from Sarai. And so the text tells us that the angel of the Lord found her and came to her and asked her a question. Now we need to pause for just a moment to address who the angel of the Lord is. We we could talk about this for a a long time. We're going to just make it really brief, just for a moment. Who is the angel of the Lord? Throughout church history, church fathers and, and, and others have, have held the view that this is potentially Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And I think that that is a fair view. Uh, that, that, that is potentially what we see here in the angel of the Lord. In a, in a general sense in scripture, when we see the angel of the Lord, it just refers to a messenger of God. And so Uh, In the New Testament with Joseph, the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and tells him about Mary and the baby and all that's happening there. But there's a unique feature here in this story that lends itself to for us to think that this is Jesus. Because you look there in verse 13, Hagar says, I have seen him who looks after me. So 
she confesses that she's seen the Lord. She says, you are a God of seeing. So potentially this is Christ. Maybe it is just the angel of the Lord. There's no confirmation of this in the New Testament that says that this was, the, this was Jesus. If there was, we would most certainly say that this is Jesus. But what we need to be careful with, and, and hear me on this, we need to be careful to not force Jesus into the Old Testament. Now, I hope you know after my time preaching through Genesis that I see that this is a gospel book. Jesus is everywhere in the book of Genesis. The entirety of the Old Testament is a proclamation of Jesus. But we must be careful to not do what the, 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 the fathers of the church did by trying to force Jesus in a spiritualized way into the Old Testament. Using something we call allegory. And so they would see the color red in the Old Testament and they'd say, there it is, there's Jesus. We need to be careful all of that to say, potentially it is Jesus, maybe it is an angel of the Lord, but here is what is unmistakable about what we see in these few verses here, that this is a word of the Lord. The word of God has come to this Egyptian slave girl. So back in verse 8, he asks her a question. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? Again, reminiscent of the garden when God comes to Adam and Eve after they've, after they've sinned and they're hiding in the garden. He says, where are you? Where have you, where have you come from? Where have you been? And so she responds and she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress. And notice there where he found her. He found her on the way to shore. This is a desert that is outside of Egypt. So where is Hagar going? She's running home. I've had enough of this. I'm going back home. But notice what the angel says to her. Notice what the word of the Lord is to her. He says to her there, return to your mistress and submit to her. Interestingly, that the word of the Lord is not seek revenge or boast or go on back to your family. Rather, he says to return and submit. This is a hard command from the Lord to this Egyptian slave girl. It's not easy when God says to us to love our enemies or to turn the other cheek or sub to submit to those who have authority over us or not to seek vengeance. And yet, as we come to find in verses 15 and 16, Hagar obeyed the word of the Lord. She went back to Abram and Abram named his son Ishmael as the angel, as the word told him to. God also promises that Ishmael will come into a great nation. Sounds very similar to the Abrahamic blessing of count the stars, Abraham. The nation that will come from you will be greater than them, but it's, it's not quite the same. We also see that Ishmael and his descendants are going to be one that are, 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 are full of controversy and conflict. It says there in verse 12, he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against Everyone, But notice here something really important. The angel, the word of the Lord, is that the name of the child should be Ishmael, which means this. God hears. God hears. And so Hagar recognizes who God is and what he's done, and she declares that. You see that in verse 13. She says, you are a God of seeing. Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. She goes on to name the well this, God sees. Right away in the story, we're, we're reminded that the blessing of the seed is not just for the descendants of Isaac who is to come. The blessing of the seed, the blessing of Messiah is for all nations. 
Right now, God is drawing people to himself from every tribe and tongue. But again, back to the the call here to wait for the Lord. There is an overwhelming call from this text to wait for the Lord. And this call to wait for the Lord is echoed throughout the pages of Scripture. I, I want you to just listen. Listen to all of these verses that speak about waiting for the Lord. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Isaiah 40, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Lamentations 3, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen of the morning, more than watchmen of the morning. Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord, he is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Psalm 37, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. Psalm 37, verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Isaiah 64, from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Finally, Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. There are most certainly seasons of waiting in store for us in the Christian life. And the call of the passage, the call of Scripture is that we would be people who trust and hope and wait on the Lord. And if we're honest this morning, we are not good at this. We are a people who need instant gratification. And if you doubt me in that, just reach in your pocket and find your cell phone. We are reactionary people. When a problem presents itself, we respond immediately in and of ourselves. We are results-oriented people. We are more concerned about getting from point A to point B than what happens in the middle of that process and what God has in store for us and the people that we interact with on the journey. For some of us, if we're honest, when a problem arises and someone's response is, hey, you know what, let me pray about that, we kind of think to ourselves, really? That's your response? You want to pray about it? When we are in seasons of transition, we don't like to wait, and yet the call of Scripture is wait on the Lord. Now, it is good and right for us to say, where are you, Lord? And we affirmed Abram last week in chapter 15 for being honest and transparent before the Lord and saying, Lord, where is the son that you promised? And so how many times in life have you found yourself in a season of waiting? I want you to just think back over your life. In all of the times where you found yourself waiting for the Lord and asking the question to God, God, where are you? And time and time and time and time again, he answers and he is faithful 
Sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes months, maybe it even takes years, but we can look back on our life and see his faithful hand to deliver us. Over and over, he provides, he delivers. And it might not always be what we wanted. It might not always be what we prayed for, but looking back, we can see that he is and was and will forever be faithful. And so I think about growing up as an Air Force brat and the prospect of every several years having to pack up all of our stuff and move across country and make new friends and the, and the burden that that was and the fear that that brought and the anxiety that that brought upon me, even as a little boy. But now that I am grown, I can look back in every place we lived growing up. God was faithful. He was good. Precious memories from living all over this country. Now, that does not mean that everything was great. There were hard times. There were trials but God was faithful. So how should you be waiting on the Lord today? Maybe today you're needing clarity about a specific situation. You're needing answers to an undiagnosed problem. I'm sure there's lots of lots of waiting here as we gather in this place this morning. Again, the message of Scripture is this, wait for the Lord. So we come back then as we close to the question we asked at the beginning. What do we do with Hagar? What do we do with this Egyptian slave girl? In light of these two things we've considered, there are consequences for not submitting to God's ways. And there is waiting when submitting to God's ways. At the heart of the passage, when God speaks to Hagar, we see something very simple. And it's something very profound. And it is this. God sees and he hears our affliction. The name of the child is Ishmael. God hears the the declaration, the confession of Hagar is that God sees and we rest in that truth today. He is not a distant God. He is not a far off God. He is near. He sees and he hears. And so we conclude just The same way that we started this morning with verses 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The story ends just as it began. There is still not a son for Abram. The conflict still remains. Sarai is still barren, but God spoke. And his word showed a better way. When we know that God sees and hears us in our affliction, we will trust his hand and wait for his promises. And even though we don't always see deliverance in this life from the burdens that we bear, we rest in the fact that we will one day be delivered from sin and death once and for all, by the blood of Christ, by believing in him. And so rest in this today, friend. God sees, God hears, wait for him. 